This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stuart Ferris, who is an assistant professor of gynecology and obstetrics and also the director of the Mons Gynecologic Oncology Fellowship Program at Johns Hopkins. Uh, Stuart Ferris uh, is publishing, um, along with his team, a uh, review on uterine serous carcinoma, key advances and novel treatment approaches in our journal, and uh, we want to thank you, Stuart, for your time and uh, for um, discussing this great article with us. Oh, no problem. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Stuart, I, I uh, you know, certainly uh, we have a lot of questions. It's a great article, so ideally we will be able to cover uh, most of them, if not all of them. But I wanted to start by having you discuss uh, some of the overall details regarding uh, uterine serous carcinomas, uh, particularly on the incidence. Um, the, the typical stages of presentations and the overall prognosis for these types of tumors? Sure. Um, so I think it's important to note that uterine serous carcinoma is a unique um, histologic entity that is a high-grade endometrial cancer. It's distinct from, say, a high-grade endometrioid mm -hmm. cancer. Um, it is an uncommon uh, histologic type that represents less than 10% of all the endometrial cancers each year. Um, but despite its small incidence, it has an outsized effect on uh, patient outcomes and represents about almost 40% of disease-specific deaths each year. Um, so it's definitely um, a, an entity that requires a lot of our attention, despite its uh, uncommon occurrence. Most endometrial, excuse me, most uterine serous carcinoma patients are going to present with high-stage disease, with disease spread um, outside the uterus. Um, and that, I think, um, means that we need to take um, extra care in terms of making sure we stage these cancers properly. Um, and then given its uh, outsized impact on um, survival, I think that a lot of attention is going to be paid to um, novel treatment approaches, which is really the thrust of our article. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I was interested in also is that uh, obviously we were very familiar with the risk factors for the endometrioid types, but can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit more about like risk factors for these types, for the uterine serous carcinomas? Sure. Um, so risk factors specifically for uterine serous carcinoma are related to a personal history of breast cancer or tamoxifen exposure. Um, and possibly some hereditary cancer syndromes. Um, clinical features that are often associated with this cancer include older age women, um, of course, being higher stage of diagnosis and mutations in P53 and a few other pathways. And, and um, one of the uh, one of the questions, actually, throughout the um, the interview, I'm going to ask you some questions that came directly from the fellows of the journal. Um, and this one is from Arthur Shu, who is in Taiwan. Uh, he asked, why is it that uh, particularly black women are more likely to be diagnosed with uterine serous carcinoma compared to both Hispanic and non-Hispanic white women? That's a great question. And I don't think we have a sufficient answer for that yet. Um, we do know that this cancer is disproportionately represented among women of African descent. Um, and in addition to that, their survival um, is disproportionately poor compared to um, other women of different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds. I think it's really important and when we talk about cancer disparity and race that we remember that race is a social construct 
And we just don't know enough yet about the individual polymorphisms and um, hereditary uh, backgrounds that predispose uh, particular patients to cancers. When we talk about race, we're always lumping people into huge categories. So it's really challenging to um, you know, really drill down into why it is. But it's such a great question. And I do think that we need to continue to work on the opposite end of the care side, right? So we know that women of African descent have a higher proportion of the, represent a higher proportion of these cancers, but also, and at least in the United States, for sure, we're failing them in their treatment. And more often than not, um, because cancer care is happening in small areas, small communities, they're not getting the specialized care they need. So I do think there's a way for us to impact um, at least the survival from these cancers, despite the fact that we don't fully understand why they're happening in the first place. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, one of the other uh, factors you mentioned, Stuart, was uh, breast cancer. Now, mm-hmm. you know, my question pertains more to whether uterine serous carcinoma is directly associated with breast cancer, uh, or is it primarily an issue of the fact that most patients, or many patients, uh, with breast cancer are routinely on tamoxifen, mm-hmm. and then therefore this is what's causing the, the cancer? Yes, well, that's a really great chicken and egg question. Um, so, I think that what I can say to that is that we know for sure there is a link between tamoxifen exposure and endometrial cancers. And we know also that many women who have breast cancer end up on drugs similar to this. The, in the original study that linked the incidence of tamoxifen exposure to incidence of, of endometrial cancer, 20% of patients in that study had uterine serous carcinoma, which is a huge outsized representation of that cancer amongst those patients. So there is definitely something at play here that we don't fully understand. So um, one of the, the other questions regarding these risk factors um, comes to us from Emma Allison. She's in Australia, one of our fellows also. Um, and she, she, her question is primarily about the role of BRCA mutations and Lynch syndrome and how do these play into uterine serous carcinoma. And she goes on to ask, should routine hysterectomy be performed when performing risk-reducing surgery in BRCA patients? Mm. That's a really good question. So I think um, we have emerging evidence that there might be a link between um, the BRCA uh, mutation syndrome um, and uterine serous carcinoma. Uh, There's been some conflicting evidence in the literature through the years of whether or not a, a true link really exists. But a growing body of literature out of Israel, specifically uh, looking at patients with germline uh, BRCA mutations, um, is making a very strong case that there is a, um, a higher incidence of uterine serous carcinoma in those patients. So I would say that if you, we, the way the question was posed in terms of routinely doing a hysterectomy for BRCA patients, I would say mm, probably not routine. Mm-hmm. But then I would also say this is a very interesting place where the patient and the surgeon need to have a, a very detailed discussion about risk. And pers- in my personal practice, if I have a patient of, let's say, Ashkenazi Jewish descent, where um, in these populations, we are seeing increasing risk of uterine serous carcinoma, it is the time to have that discussion with the patient and help them make an informed choice. Um, but I, overall, to say routine, I think we're not there, 
Um, and we know that doing adding a hysterectomy to what otherwise would have been an uncomplicated DSO definitely increases the risk profile for those patients. So I think that's a very important discussion to have. Um, and then regarding Lynch, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's there's a, several studies that have looked at um, the macrocytes in uh, instability in um, in uterine serous carcinomas and really have not found high levels of microcytolite instability to suggest a specific link uh, to Lynch syndrome. But we know that Lynch patients can get all kinds of endometrial cancer. So, but a specific link really hasn't been um, uh, determined. So yeah, those are those are excellent points for for discussion with the uh, with the patients. And then one of the other things also, I think, um, you know, we know about the precursor lesions for most endometrioid cancers, mm-hmm. um, that being hyperplasia. Are, are there any precursor lesions in the setting of uterine serous carcinoma? Yes. Yeah, so the vast majority of uterine serous carcinomas can be linked to a precursor lesion that's um, in the contemporary terms by the pathologist called endometrioid, excuse me, endometrial intraepithelial carcinoma, mm-hmm. so, or EIC. Um, and what is notable about that precursor lesion is there are reports, case reports, very small series of patients with reported EIC in the uterus with evidence of both lymphascular space invasion and also mm. um, metastasis. So, you know, we, much work really needs to be done here to understand this entity. And I think really those that evidence, even though it is small and case series or case reports, should definitely get our attention that this is a precursor entity that deserves significant attention. Oh, very important point. And wasn't aware of that information. Um, now, tell us a little bit more about the molecular and sort of genetic alterations, particularly for uterine serous carcinomas. Um, I would say that um, as a clinician, and I'm not a molecular biologist, but I will say that what we're learning is that there are several important pathways, molecularly speaking, in terms of the pathogenesis of uterine serous carcinoma, and several of which we've all heard before. So we know that P53 pathway plays a very important role in this cancer, but also the PI3 uh, kinase pathway, Mm -hmm. the HER2 or ERB2 pathway is very important, cyclin E1 uh, as well. So we are getting a deeper and deeper understanding as more additional research is done that um, this is a distinct cancer uh, from other endometrioid cancers. It is while often discussed clinically in association with ovarian high-grade serous cancers, mm-hmm. it is still distinct yet again from that, from a molecular point of view. There is some overlap. Um, so I think you know we are beginning to get a deeper understanding, which I think you're also getting to see as we have more targeted agents um, available to treat yeah, so this is a perfect segue to my, my next question because obviously let's get into the details of the mm-hmm. targeted therapy. Um, actionable molecular targets, and wondering if you can tell us about potential responses to immunotherapy, which seems to be a question that many patients are asking today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, most immunotherapies uh, in endometrial cancer tend to, we tend to see the 
most uh, impressive response when patients who have microsatellite instability, which is not something that is characterized often in uterine serous carcinoma. So on the first blush, you would think, well, you're not going to get see many responses. But data that has come out very recently showed us that uh, the combination of an immunotherapy such as pembrolizumab in combination with a multi-kinase inhibitor like linvatinib really does show us that these patients can respond uh, to this um, immunotherapy that is a that is incorporated into uh, additional treatment. And in fact, we're seeing very good responses to patients with recurrent um, uh, uterine serous carcinoma uh, to that combination specifically. Mm-hmm. So then now another another important point, and, and this one I think certainly uh, your group has been leading, is the HER2-new, and you mentioned this previously, HER2-new expression um, in the treatment of patients with serous carcinoma. How does this play into the decision-making um, when you're seeing your patients with uh, a uterine serous carcinoma? Yeah, and I mean, all credit goes to my co-author, Dr. Amanda Fader, who has really um, been one of the... Uh, leaders in understanding sort of the pathway and the, the therapeutic potential of, of HER2. So I think, you know, HER2 is one of those drivers um, in the pathogenesis of many uterine serous carcinomas. And when we can identify patients who overexpress or have mutations in HER2, then we can then use targeted therapies in those patients potentially. And specifically in patients with advanced disease, um, we have, there is phase two and growing data to show us that their survival can be positively impacted by the addition of a targeted agent such as trastuzumab. Um, and I think that has been a watershed in the treatment of uh, this very aggressive uh, uterine cancer. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I was curious about, um, and hopefully you can provide some clarification, in your, in your mm. review you say that HER2-new testing must be done uh, both by immunohistochemistry and by FISH or fluorescent mm. to hybridization. Why is that? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, um, this is a really important point, I think, because there isn't a specific algorithm of HER2 testing for endometrial cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, we are borrowing the algorithm from um, breast cancer and others. So, um, the algorithm, as stated currently, is if the immunohistochemistry screen is negative, then the HER2 expression is considered negative. And if it's positive, well, then it's positive. Mm. But if it's in the middle, if it's intermediate, then FISH is employed. And what work out of our group has shown is that even in these patients with a negative IHC or an intermediate IHC, many of these patients are going to really be fish positive. And so mm. what we, so we don't really have a very well worked out algorithm for HER2 expression testing in endometrial cancer. So until we can have something that is validated in the literature, if it is feasible, we recommend that fish and her, uh, excuse me, fish and um, uh, IHC both be done in order not to miss patients who could benefit. And I think that particularly in the advanced and recurrent setting, this is really important. Mm-hmm. So one of the things also that I was interested in is, you know, obviously homologous recombination, DNA repair, HRD. 
have become really important issues of prognostic factors in ovarian cancer. was wondering, does this have any role in uterine serous carcinoma? Yes, this is an emerging area of understanding, um, and the we're still sort of, I think, in the early phases of this, but the um, we sort of two big groups of patients. So we have patients who have germline BRCA mutations. We also have patients who have somatic alterations of their cancer um, BRCA proteins or BRCA-associated proteins so that they have a phenotype of a, a BRCA mutation. So um, we have sort of both populations of patients exist in the uterine serous carcinoma um, patients. And we are seeing that many patients who have uterine serous carcinoma show us evidence of homologous recombination deficiency. So not a germline mutation per se, but a somatic alterations that give them that sort of phenotype. And so that then allows us the very logical conclusion, perhaps we can target these patients with PARP inhibitors, for example, um, or other drugs that would um, exploit these uh, deficiencies. And, and Stuart, as far as you know, now uh, this is not routinely part of the, the decision process in, in management of uterine serous carcinoma. Is this something That's right. that in the future potentially may play a role? That's right. This is an emerging understanding, um, and but there are begin we are beginning to see um, early trials incorporating the use of targeted agents such as a PARP inhibitor in uterine serous carcinomas. So. What I would say to my fellow clinicians is that if you have ability of enrolling your patient in such a trial, mm-hmm. I would strongly consider it. Absolutely. So then now again, I mean, uh, the, 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 the value of this uh, article, uh, not only do you talk about the molecular and the targeted, but also you go through uh, a really nice algorithm with regards to the uh, management of patients with uterine serous carcinoma. So I want to get a little bit into that. Um, and why don't we start with early disease? You know, certainly we, mm-hmm. we consider that surgery with hysterectomy, bilateral salpingo, forectomy, um, is recommended. But, you know, one mm-hmm. question that often comes up in, in, in the operating room, often with, uh, with the fellows in discussion is, you know, every, everybody gets adjuvant treatment. So why, does, why, why do we need to go through the process of sentinel lymph node assessment, be it by sentinel lymph node or, or lymphadenectomy or mental mm-hmm. biopsy, when everybody gets chemo and, and radiation? I think accurate staging is very important. I think giving patients the appropriate uh, risk stratification is very important. Um, the, the uterine serous carcinoma is such is associated with such a high rate of nodal disease um, that it is important to incorporate assessment of the lymph nodes in that um, in in the surgery initially, is particularly in uh, what appears to be uterine confined disease because we know a significant percentage of those patients will ultimately have extra uterine disease documented um, and tailoring the treatment to them is going to be quite important. Um, And, you know, the question of omentectomy often comes up or sampling of the omentum or otherwise assessing the omentum. And there's, you know, I wouldn't say significant. There's some literature to support that a grossly normal momentum really doesn't add a lot to the staging. Um, it is my personal practice to do a sampling of the momentum, um, but not necessarily a full omentectomy. Yeah. And, and um, as a follow-up to that, you know, certainly there are many who would, are, would agree that sentinel lymph node mapping alone is uh, adequate mm-hmm. for 
the endometrioid types. Uh, but there's, you know, there's still this question as to in these high risk um, histology like uterine mm -hmm. series carcinoma, mm -hmm. is sentinel lymph node alone considered a standard? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I would say that sentinel lymph node mapping is at least considered an alternative standard um, by many groups. I would say that um, we do not have um, studies that are powered in high-grade disease to detect um, the, well, to look at sentinel lymph node detection rates, um, but the available evidence that we do have suggests that um, it is a very reasonable and safe uh, method of assessing the lymph nodes, even in high-grade disease. Um, data out of Indy Anderson, for example, um, supports that. Um, and it is our practice to um, routinely employ the sentinel lymph node algorithm, but we really pay a lot of attention to sticking to the algorithm. And if their mapping does not happen, we perform a lymphadenectomy. And in my personal practice, I give an assessment of the aortic nodes uh, separately from what's mapped in the pelvis. So mm -hmm. because it's particularly in uterine serous carcinoma, we do see a higher rate of isolated aortic, para-aortic nodal disease, um, even when the pelvic disease is negative. Okay. And then now, um, what is today's current recommendation for adjuvant treatment in any patient who has had appropriate staging with uterine serous carcinoma? What should be the standard of care? So for patients who have uh, early stage disease, they should get or be offered adjuvant therapy with paclitaxel and carboplatin for six cycles. And we have strong data to support um, that recommendation. Um, the incorporation of radiation is always a very interesting and debated topic. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, um, uh, there are data to support that there is a, definitely a role for vaginal brachytherapy in early stage patients incorporation with chemotherapy. Um, there are still um, uh, practitioners who um, recommend, th th there's a strongly recommend a role for whole pelvic radiation um, in, in addition to incorporation of chemotherapy. I would say that those data are um, not as strong. Um, we are definitely seeing a benefit of systemic chemotherapy given the high rate of distant failure in these patients when they do recur. Mm -hmm. um, so that's certainly the um, thrust for that uh, recommendation. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, what is not yet done and what I didn't say, um, but we are hoping to get more information on soon is the distinction in early stage patients between those who are HER2 uh, negative and those are HER2 positive with the addition of a, a targeted agent. We don't yet have data at that level, um, but we have retrospective data to show that it is a factor. HER2 expression is a negative prognostic factor in early stage disease out of retrospective data um, that was done here at Hopkins. Um, so we are anticipating that current trials that are enrolling patients at all stages of urine serous carcinoma and then stratifying by HER2 status and then incorporating a targeted agent will give us the 
clear sign that we should be incorporating these targeted agents early on, but that is not yet done routinely. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Actually, that was the question I was going to ask you because obviously a lot of patients have that question as well. They say, mm -hmm. well, if, if trastuzumab is potentially of benefit in advanced stage disease, why not just give it now uh, if mm -hmm. there is a HER2? So uh, ongoing trials and really looking forward to, uh, to the results of those. Um, this next question also comes from one of our fellows, Emma, again uh, from uh, Australia. Um, and her question is, what do we do with patients with uterine serous tumors that are confined to a polyp? Um, mm. Any therapy at all for those patients? So um, that, another great question. So your fellows are excellent. Um, <laughs> this, this uh, you know, so since uterine carcinoma, uterine serous carcinoma is often uh, is associated with a polyp, and we know that it arises in an otherwise atrophic endometrium often, we see those precursors in that atrophic endometrium. So this is a not uncommon situation that we find ourselves in. Um, it is our practice that patients who have residual cancer found at the hysterectomy specimen, so they had some type of endometrial sampling prior, and we have the diagnosis, mm -hmm. and they have a hysterectomy, and any residual cancer, whether it's in a polyp or not, we recommend adjuvant Uh, chemotherapy. Um, I know that there are uh, centers that may differ from that, but that is our practice. Where we hold back, where we still say that there might be a role for observation is patients who have no cancer found on the final hysterectomy specimen. So it's a very small subgroup of patients. And those patients are just offered surveillance. Yes. Okay. Now, this next question is from Cecilia Darín, who is from Argentina. She wants to know about advanced stage disease at initial presentation. And her question is, should one go straight to neoadjuvant chemotherapy or is there mm -hmm. a role for cytoreductive reductive upfront surgery in advanced uterine serous carcinoma? Sure. Yeah. So uh, retrospective data uh, support that patients who can Uh, undergo debulking surgery to no gross residual or minimal residual disease do have a survival advantage. Um, but I think that is a decision that has to be made between the surgeon and the patient. And um, But there is a growing body of retrospective data that continues to show a survival advantage when surgery can be incorporated. I think an unanswered question is, When does when the surgery is incorporated, does that matter? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this has echoes of ovarian cancer treatment, right? So, <laughs> you know, do we do the surgery first and follow it all by chemotherapy? Is it okay to incorporate new adjuvant chemotherapy with an interval surgery and additional new adjuvant chemotherapy, you know, targeted agents, et cetera? So, I mean, these are unanswered questions, but I think that what is known is that a um, an aggressive um multimodal approach is likely necessary for these patients, um, assuming that they are well enough to uh, tolerate these types of um, treatments. Yeah. And Stuart, this, this question just came up the other day in, uh, in some discussions is that um, pertaining to, again, for recurrent disease, um, mm. should one rely on the HER2 status of the original disease diagnosis, the original tumor, Or should there be a repeat test for recurrent disease? Is there any reason to think that those two will be different? So um, there is some emerging data to show that they can be and that um, biopsies of recurrent disease can show a differential HER2 expression mm -hmm. compared to the original. Um, 
I think there's still some questions about how those tests are done and whether or not we're really seeing a true difference or if we're just collecting or capturing more these days than we did in the past. I mean, that's a speculation on my part. But I think in general, when you have recurrence, disease recurrence, and you're thinking of a molecular target, biopsy of the recurrent disease is really preferred to get the most up-to-date information of what's going on with that subpopulation of the original cancer that is recurring. Great. Um, so now the um, subsequent questions here are, uh, mm-hmm. first is from Natalia Rodriguez from uh, Spain. Um, she's also wondering about um, uh, the treatment of recurrent disease. Uh, and her question is, when proceeding with therapy on combination with platinum, taxane, and trastuzumab, how long should one keep the patients on this treatment after there is a complete response? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, I lo- looked back at the original phase two protocol um, that was done that established this benefit of adding trastuzumab to paclitaxel and carboplatin chemotherapy in these patients with recurrent or advanced uterine serous carcinomas. And what the protocol did, these patients had six cycles of therapy followed by maintenance trastuzumab every 21 days until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. So indefinitely. Um, and that has been our current practice. Um, the, um, you know, these patients obviously must be monitored uh, for that toxicity and, you know, assessment of their cardiac function is going to be important. Um, but I think that that is how we see the benefit of, um, of, of adding this, tra- this targeted treatment. Um, and so that's our practice. Yeah. And I noticed actually that patients tolerate it fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, they this, do. This next question is from Sarah Nasser. She's in Germany. Um, her question is, does PDL one play any role in the management of patients with recurrent serous carcinoma? Well, uh, testing for PDL one um, expression it really isn't helpful uh, currently. We don't really frequently see it expressed, so having that information may or may not allow um, a, a clinical decision to be made. But the concept of of a, um, immune modulation in serous carcinoma, we definitely see benefit when it's something like that is combined with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor like lenvatinib. So that combo specifically of pembrolizumab and lenvatinib, mm-hmm. um, tr- absolutely um, we see significant benefit in uterine serous carcinoma patients and the recurrent setting. Yeah. And Stuart, any, any role for WE1 inhibitors? Yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, really interesting emerging data. Um, so, you know, WE1 is certainly not something that uh, a lot of people have heard of, I think, but it's one of those uh, checkpoint um, proteins are very important. So it, it typically is trying to prevent the cell from dividing when there's, um, you know, significant replicated stress. And when patients, I'm sorry, when cancer cells that are P53 deficient, they really, really re- rely on this we one um, component of the checkpoint. And so if you inhibit that protein, um, that really provides so much replicative stress that in theory is going to cause apoptosis. So, you know, this has got a really interesting scientific background. Um, and then we have now uh, phase two data to show that incorporation of WE1 inhibitors in uterine serous carcinoma patients shows a significant response rate. Mm. Um, and so additional work really needs to be done to 
um, further define that. There are some toxicities associated with it. Um, so more data to come, um, but very interesting. Yeah, but part of the potential mainstream treatment in the future. Now, mm -hmm. um, Natalia Rodriguez, again from Spain, she asked about a point you brought up earlier, um, the use of PARP inhibitors. And certainly mm -hmm. her question is, you know, PARP inhibitors have become a dominant strategy in the treatment of patients with ovarian cancer. Any role for using PARP inhibitors in uterine serous carcinoma? Yeah, so the the lab work is definitely pointing us in that direction. And I know of at least one study that's incorporating niraparib uh, with uh, the treatment of uterine serous carcinomas. So I would definitely be looking for clinical trials available to enroll my patients. Yeah. And um, this last question for our fellows, uh, Eric Estrada from Guatemala, he asked about surveillance. Um, mm -hmm. Any role really for CA125 as part of the surveillance of patients with uterine serous carcinoma? Hmm, very good. Um, so I would say that I could definitely make a rationale for a, a patient who had an initially elevated tumor marker that came down with treatment that I could make a rationale for following it. But the truth is we don't have true prognostic, you know, um, value of a CA125 in the recurrent setting. Um, so if it was elevated, I follow it. That's my personal practice. If it was not, then I have a discussion with the patient about whether or not it was even useful. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly if you're looking at it from a, um, you know, resource utilization standpoint, um, I don't think that we could stand strongly on that. So now, Stuart, this has been a great uh, conversation. I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to ask the last question. What do you see as the most exciting upcoming developments pertaining to uterine serous carcinoma? I think what I see are these um, many trials, some of which we were able to list in the paper, that are ongoing and upcoming that are really pushing the envelope on the treatment options we have available to patients Um, with uterine serous carcinoma in the recurrent and uh, advanced settings. And the hopefully the future ability of bringing targeted therapy earlier in treatment, I think will really be groundbreaking um, for us. And just the fact that we now have a growing body of um, clinical agents available for treatment in this, um, you know, uncommon but impactful in terms of survival cancer is just really encouraging. And, you know, we went so long, so many years with no specific targeted therapies to now all of a sudden go from just trastuzumab to mm -hmm. we-1 inhibitors, the potential for PARP inhibitors, immunotherapy incorporation, et cetera. It's just remarkable. So that's what I am most excited about. Well, Stuart, this has been really a pleasure. Thank you so, so much for your time, for this discussion. I really enjoyed it. I learned a, a great deal. Uh, thank you again for submitting uh, the article to our journal. Uh, I really, truly enjoyed reading this and encourage uh, all of you listening to, uh, to read this really great article. Uh, Stuart Ferris, Johns Hopkins University, thank you so much. Thank you.